The following sermon is by Josh Tancordo, the teaching pastor at Redeeming Grace Church in Pittsburgh, Pennsylvania. Redeeming Grace is a gospel-centered church that values rich biblical teaching and authentic Christian community. Learn more by visiting our website at redeeminggracepittsburgh.com. We've been working our way passage by passage through the book of Genesis, and today the next passage we come to is Genesis 5, 1 through 32. So I'll be reading a section from those verses today. This is the book of the generations of Adam. When God created man, he, created, he made him in the likeness of God. Male and female, he created them, and he blessed them and named them man when they were created. When Adam had lived 130 years, he fathered a son of his own likeness, after his image, and named him Seth. The days of Adam after he fathered Seth were 800 years, and he had other sons and daughters. Thus all the days that Adam lived were 930 years, and he died. When Seth had lived 105 years, he fathered Enosh. Seth lived after he fathered Enosh 807 years, and had other sons and daughters. Thus all the days of Seth were 912 years, and he died. When Enosh had lived 90 years, he fathered Kenan. Enosh lived after he fathered Kenan 815 years and had other sons and daughters. Thus all the days of Enosh were 905 years and he died. When Kenan had lived 70 years, he fathered Mahalalel. Kenan lived after he fathered Mahalalel 840 years and had other sons and daughters. Thus all the days of Kenan were 910 years and he died. When Mahalalel had lived 65 years, he fathered Jared. Mahalalel lived after he fathered Jared 830 years and had other sons and daughters. Thus all the days of Mahalalel were 895 years and he died. When Jared had lived 162 years, he fathered Enoch. Jared lived after he fathered Enoch 800 years and had other sons and daughters. Thus all the days of Jared were 962 years and he died. When Enoch had lived 65 years, he fathered Methuselah. Enoch walked with God, and after he fathered Methuselah, 300 years, and had other sons and daughters. Thus all the days of Enoch were 365 years. Enoch walked with God, and he was not, uh, for God took him. When Methuselah had lived 187 years, he fathered Lamech. Methuselah, living after he fathered Lamech, 782 years, and had other sons and daughters. Thus all the days of Methuselah were 969 years, and he died. When Lamech had lived 182 years, he fathered a son and called his name Noah, saying, Out of the ground that the Lord has cursed, this one shall bring us relief from our work and from the painful toil of our hands. Lamech lived after he fathered Noah 595 years and had other sons and daughters. Thus all the days of Lamech were 770 years, and he died. After Noah was 500 years old, Noah fathered Shem, Ham, and Japheth. May God bless the reading of his word. Well done, Kyle. Thank you for that. Kyle was not just the next one on the rotation. He volunteered for that text. So consider yourself commended, brother. (laughs) Let's pray together. Uh, Father, as we read and as we sung, Lord, your word is indeed more to be desired than gold and sweeter also than honey. And so help us, Lord, to see its value this morning, to taste its sweetness, 
and, of course, to experience its power through the Holy Spirit. For it's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. A Puritan pastor named Richard Baxter once said that I preached as never sure to preach again, and as a dying man to dying men. And friends, that is my intention as well this morning, because unless Jesus returns first, the simple fact is that within a hundred years, just look around this room, within a hundred years, pretty much everyone in this room will be dead, right? We begin dying from the very moment that we're born, right? We begin that process. As James 4.14 says, what is your life? For you are a mist that appears for a little time and then vanishes. You know, it's interesting how the older we get, the more we wonder, like, where did it all go? Like, it seems like only yesterday I was so much younger and and busy doing this or that. Like, how did all those years go by so quickly? Well, it's because our life is a mist, right? That appears for a few brief moments and then vanishes. And that's why my job as a pastor is in many ways to prepare you for death. How's that for a, a job description? To prepare you to die. And not just to die, but as Puritans like Baxter would say, to die well. Now, another Puritan named Edmund Barker once said that every Christian has two great works to do in the world, to live well and to die well. Now, when most people today think about what it means to die well, I imagine they usually think of things like palliative care and advanced directives and things like that. Um, If you do a Google search for the phrase dying well, Most of the results are about those kinds of topics. Yet as helpful as those things can be, I believe the Bible leads us to recognize that there are other matters that are far more important to consider than any of those practical arrangements. If we want to die well, then we have to be spiritually prepared to die. Because make no mistake, death is coming. The question regarding our death, of course, isn't one of if, but of when. So think of this discussion today not as an airplane flight attendant instructing passengers on what to do in the unlikely event of an emergency, but rather more like, I don't know, maybe an army instructor who is talking to aspiring paratroopers who are mere minutes away from jumping out of an airplane for the first time and instructing them about how to complete that jump successfully. Death is coming, and it's coming quickly, and so we need to be prepared. As Charles Spurgeon once said, we are flying as on some mighty eagle's wing swiftly on toward eternity. Let us then talk about preparing to die. It is the greatest thing we have to do, and we have soon to do it. So let us talk and think something 
about it. So how then can we die well? Well, that's the question I hope to answer before this morning is over. And our main passage today, Genesis 5, 1 through 32, certainly turns our attention in that direction. If there's anything this passage sets before us, it's the reality of death. Now, it starts out in verses 1 and 2 by reminding us of how God originally created people in his image. And part of what that means is that we were created to live forever. However, as we're about to see, that's not the way things turned out. Because of Adam and Eve's rebellion against God, recorded in Genesis 3, God announced some very serious consequences. And we read about one of those consequences in Genesis 3.19, where God says to Adam, By the sweat of your face you shall eat bread till you return to the ground, for out of it you were taken, for you are dust, and to dust you shall return. So that's how death entered the world. And we then see that playing out in Genesis 5. This chapter is basically a genealogy from Adam to Noah. Now, the previous chapter gave us a very brief genealogy, tracing Adam's line through his son Cain. However, this chapter gives us a much more extensive and detailed genealogy, tracing Adam's line through his son Seth. And the reason for that difference in extensiveness and detail, I believe, is because the descendants of Cain would eventually be wiped out by the worldwide flood, whereas the descendants of Seth would include Noah, who was rescued from the flood, as we'll see next week, and from whom the rest of the human race would come. It's also significant to note uh, that the fact that this genealogy is given is a strong indication that the first few chapters of Genesis are intended to be understood as real historical fact. Now, sometimes certain Bible interpreters will try to write off the first few chapters of Genesis as legend or some sort of myth that isn't intended to teach actual history, but rather simply to teach various moral and spiritual truths. However, Genesis 5 doesn't really allow us that option. It certainly seems as though the author of Genesis 5 intends us to interpret even these opening chapters of the book as a record of actual historical events. So looking at verses 3 and 5, we can see how this genealogy begins. When Adam had lived 130 years, he fathered a son in his own likeness, after his image, and named him Seth. The days of Adam after he fathered Seth were 800 years, and he had other sons and daughters. Thus, all the days of that Adam lived were 930 years, and he died. And as we look at the rest of the chapter, we see it pretty much follows that basic pattern for each generation. It talks about how long the man lived prior to becoming a father for the first time, uh, who he fathered, how long he lived after he fathered that first son, and then the total number of years he lived until he died. And by the way, there are different theories about like, why people lived for so long back then. It's kind of hard to imagine people living that long, but apparently it, it was the case, uh, perhaps because of something different in the characteristics of the 
pre-flood earth or the, the pre-flood physiology of human beings. Uh, but whatever it was, though, that is just a long time for someone to live. I mean, can you imagine being, you know, 300 years old and, and people still not thinking you've lived long enough to really know what you're talking about? Right? Or, or maybe you got the 800-year-olds over here lamenting about youth culture among the young and hip and rowdy 200-year-old crowd. I don't, I don't know what it was like, but regardless uh, of the fact that they lived for such an unbelievably long time, they all died eventually. Now, one notable exception is the record of Enoch in verses 21 through 24. At the young age of 365, God apparently exempted Enoch from death. Um, that kind of thing is only recorded one other time in the Bible with the prophet Elijah. I guess the lesson for us to take away from that is that God has the prerogative to do as he wishes. And yet aside from Enoch, there's one statement we find repeated over and over again in this passage probably already guessed it, and he died, right? All the days that Adam lived were 930 years, and he died. All the days of Seth were 912 years, and he died. All the days of Enosh were 905 years, and he died. And on and on it goes. Now, anytime the Bible repeats something, that's always something we want to pay close attention to, because... Uh, since uh, there was no such thing as bold font or italic font or underlining back in biblical times, repetition was a very important way in which biblical authors would often emphasize something. So we always want to pay careful attention to repetition. And this phrase, and he died, is repeated not just once, but seven times. Eight times total, the passage states that so-and-so lived for this long, and then he died. It's as if the biblical author is going out of his way to emphasize the fact that in this post-fall world, death is now a reality of life. And that's what I believe is, is the main idea from this passage. It's that simple, that death is a reality of life. Ever since humanity rebelled against God in the Garden of Eden, everyone dies eventually. Now, one of the biggest questions that raises is, how, therefore, can life be meaningful? If we're only here for an incredibly short amount of time, and then our lives are just over, how can life be meaningful? How can they be something other than a pointless exercise in futility? Well, that's a question that people have been asking for almost as long as the human race has existed. For example, the author of Ecclesiastes, most likely King Solomon, documents his search for meaning in life through various earthly endeavors. He tells us how he gave himself wholeheartedly to the pursuit of all different kinds of things, like earthly accomplishments and earthly possessions and earthly pleasures. And uh, he ended up living quite the life. As you read about Solomon's endeavors, you, you come to see that he was basically like Elon Musk 
and John Rockefeller and probably Hugh Hefner, all in the same person. Many people would say that he had it all and loved to enjoy many different things. And yet it's very sobering to read what Solomon ended up concluding about all these things. He says in Ecclesiastes 2.11, Then I considered all that my hands had done and the toil I had expended in doing it, and behold, all was vanity and a striving after the wind. There was nothing to be gained under the sun. And that's pretty much the kind of thing we read over and over again throughout the subsequent chapters of Ecclesiastes. Solomon tries this over here and then pursues that over there, but can't find anything in this world that seems to have any lasting meaning. And the reason for that, he says, is that no matter what you enjoy or accomplish in this life, death puts an end to it all. As he says in Ecclesiastes 9.5, For the living know that they will die, but the, death know, the dead know nothing. And they have no more reward, for the memory of them is forgotten. In other words, the knowledge that you're going to die one day in the not-too-distant future, and that even the memory of you will soon be forgotten, makes it impossible to view anything you enjoy or accomplish as truly meaningful. It's all a, a striving or a chasing after the wind, Solomon says. So today, as we try to answer the question, is there any way life can have meaning, I think we have to conclude with Solomon that the answer is no. Not as long as death rules over us and has the final say about everything we do. To borrow a line from Shakespeare's character Macbeth, Life really is a tale told by an idiot full of sound and fury signifying nothing. It's utterly pointless and futile. And that leaves us with a rather limited number of options for how to respond. One option that some people end up... Uh, not not maybe choosing, but at least experiencing, is depression. It turns out that if you really begin to dwell on the fact that you're basically just a chunk of meat on a really big rock, hurtling through an immense universe that could care less about your existence, and that the random chemical reactions that comprise your conscious thoughts will soon come to an end, well, that's kind of a depressing thought <laughs> to think about. And so depression is a very understandable experience, right? Why even get out of bed in the morning if it's all pointless anyway? Then a second option for how to live in light of our impending death is denial. Just live in a state of functional denial that you're going to die one day. You know, let yourself think that death is something that happens to other people. Not something that happens to you. And then just go about your life as if it will all continue indefinitely. 
Then a third option that might be the most common one for people in our society to choose is distraction. Right? Now, this often goes along with denial and basically involves busying ourselves with enough activities and earthly pursuits that we never really have time to think about the larger realities of life and death. We're too busy hurrying from this activity over here to that responsibility over there to even give a second thought to how momentary all of it is. And then there's the fourth option of delusion. Just you know, tell yourself that the things you do are meaningful, even though you'll soon die and be forgotten. Try your best to create meaning ex nihilo, as it were, or out of nothing. Speak meaning into existence. Now, so what if human existence seems absurd from a logical perspective? Your life can have meaning because you say it has meaning, right? So just go out there and, you know, find some inspirational quotes on social media and, and declare with all the enthusiasm you can muster that your life matters. So as best I can tell, um, those are the options available to a secularly minded person in our society. Don't even have to choose just one. You can choose several and mix them together and see how that works. But these are the basic options that are available. Uh, depression, denial, distraction, and delusion. However, thankfully, the Bible offers us a fifth option, and that is deliverance. Through Jesus, the Bible says, we can actually be delivered from death. Even though we may still experience physical death one day, death for us won't be the end, but rather the beginning of life like never before. Instead of being the gateway into nothingness, death becomes the gateway into eternal life in the very presence of God. And just like that, life is filled with meaning because it carries over into eternity. It's true that in our natural condition, death rules over us in the sense that it casts a dark shadow over every aspect of our lives. Yet the good news of the gospel is that Jesus has defeated death. In 2 Timothy 1.10, Paul describes Jesus as the one who abolished death and brought life and immortality to light through the gospel. The way Jesus accomplished that was actually by becoming a human himself and voluntarily experiencing death when he allowed himself to be crucified on a Roman cross. And he did that because our sins against God needed to be punished. Right? Justice, God's justice, had to be satisfied. You know, there's been a lot of conversation in recent years about justice in our society. And perhaps a good rudimentary description of justice is Everyone getting what they deserve. You know that justice in society is achieved when everyone gets what they deserve. Well, the fact of the matter is that what we 
deserve is, well, because of our rebellion against an infinitely good and holy God, it's eternal punishment. That's justice. And typically, that's what would happen. We would be the ones to suffer the punishment for our sins. But in his mercy, God the Father sent his own son, Jesus, to endure that punishment in our place when he died on the cross. Like he suffered the punishment that we deserved. And yet that in itself didn't constitute victory over death. Um, Jesus couldn't possibly deliver us from death if he couldn't even deliver himself from death. Uh, a dead Savior, after all, is no Savior at all. Thankfully, though, Jesus didn't stay in the grave, but victoriously rose from the dead so that he's now able to offer us the opportunity to share in that victory. And that's why in John eleven twenty five and 26, Jesus says to a woman who was grieving the death of her brother, he says, I am the resurrection and the life. Whoever believes in me, though he die, yet shall he live. And everyone who lives and believes in me shall never die. So whoever believes in Jesus in the sense of putting their trust in him to deliver them from sin and death, even though they might die physically, will ultimately live spiritually. And in that eternal sense, they shall never die, Jesus said. We also read in 1 Corinthians 15, 20 through 22, But in fact, Christ has been raised from the dead, the firstfruits of those who have fallen asleep. For as by a man, that's Adam, came death, by a man has come also the resurrection of the dead. For as in Adam all die, so also in Christ shall all be made alive. So Jesus broke the pattern of death, not just for himself, you know, like Enoch back in Genesis 5, but for everyone who puts their trust in him. Now, Enoch may have escaped death, but Jesus conquered death. And so the most important question you should be considering this morning is, have you yet put your trust in this crucified and risen Savior to rescue you? From sin and death. Now understand that you can't earn God's favor or merit eternal life. No, these things are free gifts that are only received by looking to Jesus and putting your full trust and confidence in him for rescue. And until you've done that, dear friend, I can tell you that you are not ready to die. And perhaps today you can sense that. In your heart. Like something within your heart is telling you that what I'm saying is true. You know, when I was a teenager, I was pretty good friends with these two brothers, Mike and Cody. And one of the things we liked to do together was go hunting. And so one day we were out there in the field with Mike and Cody's dad setting in a new hunting rifle. And 
the target, I guess, was about 100 yards away, and, and I guess we didn't have binoculars. I don't know, because for some reason, after we shot at the target, we, had to, we all piled into the pickup truck, and Mike and Cody's dad would drive down to the target to see uh, what, where we had hit it. And instead of turning the truck around every time, he would just throw it into reverse. Um, so he would go down there and forward, and then he would just reverse and, and come back without turning around with the, the three of us teenagers on the tailgate. And so, yeah, not, very, not a very good idea, as we're about to see. And uh, so we were actually sitting on the tailgate, me and Mike and Cody. This truck was going in reverse, and I guess Mike wasn't holding on very well. So he actually fell off of the tailgate and got run over by this pretty sizable crew cab truck. Um, you know, to this day, I can still like, feel the, just the sickening bump of, the, of this truck running over his body. And, uh, of course, we all got out of the truck right away, and, and we could just see Mike lying there in the field, just writhing in pain and with a big bloody gash on his head. And I'll never forget what he kept on saying. He said, I don't want to die. I don't want to die. Now, keep in mind, Mike was a, was a pretty tough guy, you know, football player and woodsman and, and all the rest. And yet he, as he lay in that field, he was basically just crying. I don't think because of the pain, but because he didn't want to die. Now, thankfully, he was uh, life-flighted out of there and ended up making a full recovery. Uh, praise God. And yet, it was very revealing to see in that moment of crisis what was in his heart. And I wonder if a similar fear is in your heart somewhere down in the depths of your heart today. If you found yourself staring death in the face, what would you say? Would you be ready for that? Like, would you be ready to face God? Because the reality is, of course, that that day will eventually come for every one of us. It might not be today or tomorrow or the next day, but that day will eventually come when our sojourn on this earth is over and you find yourself standing before God. Are you ready for that? You know, I began this morning by saying that in a manner of speaking, my job description as a pastor is to prepare you for death. Well, I want to let you know that the only way you can be prepared for that is through Jesus. And by putting your trust in him to rescue you from your sins and, and by turning your, over, your, your life over to him. Now, if on the other hand, you're pretty satisfied with you know, shallow cliches and the vague kinds of sentiments expressed at most funerals nowadays, as you, and you're good with that as your comfort in the face of death, well, then I don't know. I, I suppose I'm, I don't really have much to offer you. But if you want something more than those shallow cliches, 
And you want a hope that's real. And I'm here to tell you that that hope, it's available to you. And his name is Jesus. Not only that, but there's also plenty to consider for those of us who have already put our faith in Jesus and are confident we'll spend eternity with him. You'll remember I mentioned the concept not just of uh, dying, but of dying well. How are we able to die well? What do we have to do to prepare ourselves for that? Well, I have to say that putting our faith in Jesus is certainly the foundational element, but is by no means the only element if you're um, in order to die well. If we want to die well, then we have to live well. If you're taking notes, feel free to write that down if, um, as, a, as a key point. That the key to being able to die well tomorrow is to live well today. The key to being able to die well tomorrow is to live well today. And there are three reasons why I say that. First of all, living well is the basis of our assurance that we really are in Christ and really have been saved. If we've truly put our faith in Jesus for salvation, then it's going to show up in our lives. We're going to be different people. Not perfect, but different. So our assurance of salvation is directly tied to the kind of life we live. Someone who isn't actively living for Jesus has no biblical basis to think that they're saved, while someone who is living for Jesus and who loves Jesus and who desires to glorify Jesus with their life has a very strong biblical basis to believe they're saved and can have incredible peace in their heart as they anticipate their transition from this life into the next. They have no reason to be anxious and every reason to be filled with peace. In addition, living well is not only the basis of our assurance, but also the source of our satisfaction as we look back on a life well-lived. That's another reason why I say that the key to being able to die well tomorrow is to live well today. And part of living or part of dying well is being able to look back over our lives and be satisfied with what we've used our lives to do. So how are you using your life? What kind of an impact are you making? What kind of a legacy are you leaving? It's been said that the best use of life is to spend it on something that will outlast it. So are you doing that? Like, are you telling people about Jesus? Are you seeking to make a spiritual investment in people around you? Are you striving to advance the kingdom of God? Another way to evaluate your life in the present is to ask yourself, how would you live if you knew that you only had one year left on this earth? What would you 
stop doing? What would you start doing? And then live that way, right? Like stop doing what you think you'd stop doing and start doing what you think you'd start doing. And when the great theologian Jonathan Edwards was a young man, he wrote down a resolution that he intended to guide his life. He wrote, resolved that I will live so as I shall wish I had done when I come to die. Let that be your resolution as well. Live the way you think you'll wish you had lived when it's time to die. So if you don't think you'll wish that you'd given more time to making a name for yourself or accumulating lots of money or you know, keeping up with the latest fashions or being so engrossed in a thousand and different one things of this world, then stop giving so much attention to those things. And instead, focus your life on things that have eternal value. And then a third and final reason why the key to dying well tomorrow is living well today is that living well allows us to die with the joyful anticipation of heavenly rewards. If we've gone through our entire lives as if this life is all there is, even if we say something differently, we're going to be sorely disappointed when this life is over. The day of our death will be a quite probably a day of despair rather than one of rejoicing. However, if we've gone through our lives with the mentality that this life is basically just a dress rehearsal for eternity, and therefore have spent our lives preparing for eternity and laying up treasures in heaven, as Jesus tells us to do in Matthew 6, then when we come uh, to, to the day, when our transition into eternity is imminent, oh, it's a wonderful day. We get to joyfully anticipate enjoying the heavenly rewards that we've spent our entire lives storing up. And that joyful anticipation is a key component of dying well. So dying well involves having confident assurance of our salvation, deep satisfaction with the way we've lived, and joyful anticipation of heavenly rewards. And experiencing those things in the future requires being very thoughtful and deliberate about the way we live in the present. Dying well tomorrow is only possible to the degree that we live well today. You know, having been a hospice chaplain for three years before I became a pastor, I can tell you that I have seen many people die. And I can also tell you that there's an enormous difference between someone on their deathbed who has lived for Jesus and someone who hasn't. I think Spurgeon says it best when he states that it is a grand thing to see a man dying full of life. How wonderful to see someone on their deathbed and yet more full of life 
than they've ever been. When someone has faithfully lived for Jesus and loved Jesus and made Jesus the center of their life, then I have to agree again with Spurgeon that all the glories of midday are eclipsed by the marvels of sunset.